Okay, well, hello everyone. Thanks as always for joining us here at the History 296 podcast. Um, hope this finds you well wherever you're at and whenever you're listening to this. Um, so this week in the course, we will be turning our attention to South Korea after the war, the Republic of Korea, and um, particularly focusing in on the nearly seven to eight years that Syngman Rhee um, ruled in the 1950s. He would be eventually flee office with a, a resulting from a democratic uprising um, on April 12th of 1960. Uh, but that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Um, that's kind of where we're, that's the, the area we're going to try to be focusing on. And it's one, um, you know, we say this every week, but it, it is certainly true. It's a, a period of upheaval, of dramatic transformations, of South Korean society trying to, in some ways, find its bearings, right? That Korean society and Korean culture and the Korean people um, as a, an ethnic group, as an identity, um, have obviously existed and persisted for millennia, well over a thousand years, several thousand years, depending on how you want to define it. But at the same time, South Korea or the Republic of Korea um, is still an extremely new um, society, a new state, a new sovereign entity, and certainly one that is going to draw upon um, existing Korean cultural motifs and, and Korean history, um, but at the same time trying to forge uh, this notion of, and, and going back to this theme we've hit upon throughout the course, you know, what is a Korean modernity and tying it back to what we talked about um, last week with North Korea after the war, to the extent that we can follow paradigms set by Barrington Moore that looked at capitalism, communism, and fascism as kind of three routes to modernity for societies to travel along in, in pursuit of these kind of goals that we often um, associate with modern modernity or modernization. We can see that in South Korea, they're going to attempt to follow what we would call roughly the capitalist route, right? And, and trying to ally itself or, or find a place within the U.S. alliance system in the Cold War. Obviously, as we noted, one of the big outcomes of the, Cold, of the Korean War was extremely deep connection and close connections between the United States and Korea that, as we noted, certainly didn't exist in the immediate post-colonial period during the U.S. occupation. And in some ways, that was one of the bonds um, forged by the Korean War and in many ways um, persists to this day with a large contingent of U.S. Um, soldiers and other personnel, um, American personnel within South Korea to the present day. And in the context of trying to think about this new society in South Korea after the war, um, settling in and trying to establish its identity, that that is also, we can look back at another one of the major legacies of the Korean War was, as we discussed, it in some ways gave um, the South Korean government a source of legitimacy or, or a, a language, a story to tell that legitimated its rule and its function um, within the post-colonial, post-Korean War world, right? And that was one namely of protecting um, the people of South Korea and ensuring their um, liberty from what was seen as the dark and dangerous and malevolent forces of the communists, right? And um, establishing itself as this notion of a free Korean government set about to protect the people in South Korea, but also ultimately to liberate um, the people in North Korea, right? And it, it's important to consider that this was a, a major shift from 
um, just almost 10 years um, previous at the, at the very end of the colonial period in the, in the 1940s, in um, late 1940s, uh, the government very much struggled to gather any sort of popular support in no small part connected to things we've discussed um, being having so many people that were wealthy and therefore tainted with this branding of collaboration by many within society that it they were on very um, shaky ground. Um, and, and, and the mass revolts and uprisings we talked about um, indicate that, right? And so it, in some ways, the Korean War was a, was a mechanism through which on the other end of it, the government of Syngman Rhee and, and the South Korean government more generally had a genuine anchor in terms of its legitimacy. And, and, and it was in many ways, again, to um, protect people from what was seen as a dangerous and dark force in the North. And so in this way, what we're going to really try to dig into this week, and, and I guess, you know, what I hope you can gather from the readings and our discussions in class and in the student-led class this week as well, is to think about what kind of core elements of South Korean society, which is dramatically different than it is, um, you know, than it was in the 1950s. Um, every society is dramatically different, but um, notably South Korea, because it has now become such a um, wealthy and prosperous society. It is increasingly now a, you know, very culturally relevant society um, over the last 10 years um, in terms of pop music and other television shows and movies has really become a very prominent country on the world stage. And it's interesting to think that that would be hardly what one would have expected or predicted in the 1950s. Many outside observers didn't really give the South Korean regime much chance of even making it very long, right? It didn't, wasn't even clear that the regime after the Korean War was going to be able to persist because of the high levels of poverty and destruction. And, and in some ways that um, mirrored um, the situation in the North. But as we noted, um, they, as opposed to the North, there wasn't even a, a pre-existing industrial base to try to recreate. And so in, in some ways, South Korea was even in a more set of dire straits. Of course, they had U.S. aid and support, but that was limited and limiting, right? And in some ways, a lot of the social and political dynamics during the reign of Syngman Rhee after the Korean War was tied to dependence on U.S. aid and the government's use of that connection to U.S. aid and support to funnel money and benefits to its allies, right? And that kind of sowed the seeds for its ultimate downfall. So this was... Again, a, a continuingly period of turbulence and political upheaval that would culminate in the democratic uprising of, of April 1960 and the eventual assumption of power of Park Chung-hee, who we're going to spend um, a whole class talking about um, in a few weeks, or actually, I believe, next week. But even though that period of rapid industrialization, the 60s and 70s, is, is commonly focused on as a period of, of drastic transformation, I hope this week we can dig into some of the ways that a lot of the basis for what we know today as South Korea or some of the key cultural and social and political and economic foundations of what would grow into what we can see as South Korea today were present and in many ways established um, or set down during this period um, between 1953 and 1960. Okay, well, I'll leave it there for today. Um, that's just something to keep in mind, right? How, how can we see present South Korea and, and issues and 
the shape of present day South Korea? How can we see some of the foundations? And that's one of the things I think is um, really useful and interesting about studying history is that even though Korea in 1955 or 1954, South Korea was very, very different than what we see today, we're still able to identify, I think, key elements that um, and foundational elements that persist um, well beyond uh, that period. And somehow, even though perhaps transformed or changed, um, persist even into the present day. Um, and I think that's one thing I want you to focus on when you're doing the reading and looking at some of the notes and, and so forth for this week. Okay, well, have a great weekend and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much for listening. 